is Elisa. Hi, my name is Summerveer. Hi, my name is Elisa. Hi, my name is Ryan. Today we will be talking about COP28. So COP28 stands for the Conference of Parties 28 and it's going to last from November the 30th to December the 12th. It's actually going to be at the same site as Expo 2020. It's the UN's annual climate summit that has taken place since 1995. The UN describes the COP as the supreme decision-making body of the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. And this has uh, been going on since 1992, which is when it was first held. So COP usually has different themes, and this year the main themes are inclusion, finance, energy, education and food. And what it really is, is looking at different sustainable development goals and building upon them. So, do any of you know any of the contributing countries or companies that might be attending COP? So, a major figure who will be playing a big role in the conference is Dr. Sultan Al Jabbar. He is the Minister for the United Arab Emirates and he will take over this year's crucial UN climate talks. Um, and he heads the country's oil company and sustainable energy businesses. Uh, it's also going to be contributed by OPEC, which is the uh, Organization of Petroleum Exporting Countries. And it'll be interesting to see their take on how oil can play a part in the future world. Actually, it's interesting to note that it's not just world leaders and governments. While they play a very important part in COP, it's also about youth activists and external companies and even an advisory board, which aren't just politicians. So it really includes everyone, not to mention the fact that part of it will be open to the public and there's more on that afterwards. And I think this will be extremely important because as of the projection by the United Nations in September 2023, the UN and uh, the world is not on track to meet the targets set in the Paris Agreement. So COP28 will be a significant moment um, because it marks the first global stock take, which is basically an assessment of collective efforts and every single country's progress towards meeting the goals of the Paris Agreement. So the global stock take will fill in gaps and help with progressing to meet those goals for climate action in the future. COP28 should also finalise crucial work on several long-awaited uh, deliverables, including deciding on a global goal on adaptation for climate change, the details of the loss and damage, and uh, yeah, general global goal on finance involving climate change. I think it's also worth mentioning that this COP, COP28, is the first COP in which food wastage and food and agriculture will actually play a big part. Because while food, of course, is what we have to survive, many countries don't actually see it as a priority when it comes to their sustainable development. Most countries who do prioritize it are actually developing countries in Africa, which, all things considered, don't really contribute as much to the climate effects of food. So actually, in the previous COP27 in Egypt, um, they agreed on a compensation fund for those countries most affected by climate change um, and who struggle most from starvation. Um, that's called the Loss and Damage Fund, um, and it will be discussed in further detail at the upcoming COP28. 
I think I should also say that the site of COP is actually split into the blue zone and the green zone. So one zone is specifically for invite-only delegates from the different countries, but one zone is actually open to the public, so anyone can actually go there. And that's really important because people need to understand the importance of climate change and how it actually impacts them. They also need to be involved in the actions that were taken towards a better and greener future. So I think we should delve now deeper into some of the things that may be discussed at COP. So one of those things is energy, more importantly trying to find more renewable energy sources to replace the ones we have now. A significant goal of moving towards clean energy is to slash greenhouse gas emissions before 2030. Yeah, the projected global warming um, is actually 2.4 to 2.6 degrees Celsius um, post-COP27. But if all pledges are achieved by the end of COP28 and fulfilled, it can be as less as 1.7 to 2.1 degrees. So one of the forms of energy we could look at is solar energy. So would anyone like to speak about that? Well, solar, of course, is a very... Uh, well, in terms of renewable energy, it's like, very ideal because it comes straight from the sun, which of course will last for billions of years. But while it is certainly one of the most potent forms of renewable energy, it relies on the fact that there needs to be sunlight. And this makes it only therefore really effective in countries such as the UAE uh, and yeah, countries with lots of sunlight. So this restricts its use in certain locations and it also makes it uh, not always um, doesn't have like a full 100% power, but it can't always be generating power because sometimes it'll be cloudy, and this applies for other forms of energy as well. So actually, adding on to Ryan's point, it's actually important to know that with solar panels, they have an optimum temperature and an optimum light intensity. Even countries that you might think have a lot of sunlight and solar power would be ideal for them, actually it isn't, because if there's too much light intensity or the temperature is too high, then the solar panels still won't actually work. So only countries with a perfect medium average will actually be able to benefit it from it to the extent that you would expect it to. And even on top of all of this, it has relatively low efficiency uh, ratings, which means that even if it can get this optimum temperature, it still may not be able to convert it to electricity. It also has a high initial cost. The installation of solar panels can be quite expensive. And although prices have been decreasing, space is also a large requirement. Um, solar installations need significant amounts of space, um, especially in densely populated areas. So the next energy source we can talk about is wind energy or hydroelectric energy. Yeah, I think that this one is very good, but Similar to the last one, there are some of the basic downsides, which is about climate. Um, sometimes it might not be windy enough for it to actually work. It can also have an impact on local wildlife. Um, and it also does not produce massive amounts of energy, so that needs to be taken into account. I think the energy source that most people are looking at is the most likely to replace fossil fuels, which is nuclear energy. So nuclear energy has various uh, key advantages. One of them, of course, is that it does not release any greenhouse gases. It releases water vapor, but this forms part of the water cycle, so it's not considered. And in, the ter in terms of climate change, this is, of course, like 
profound. And is why uh, countries such as France, which utilize nuclear energy to a great extent, have one of, well, one of the lower um, CO2 emissions in terms of energy production. Yeah, just for some background on nuclear energy, it's produced by nuclear fission um, uh, in a reaction where atoms uh, bind together. Uh, and nuclear power is, as Ryan mentioned, one of the most low carbon sources, so it has a really small carbon footprint. Um, and above that, it's really energy dense. So as a result, you can see how essential it is to our response to climate change and greenhouse gas emissions. Exactly, and going on what she was saying about energy density, one single pellet of uh, uranium, which is used as nuclear fuel, which is about the size of the tip of a man's little finger, produces as much energy as about a ton of coal or 560 liters of oil. So there's clearly a lot of energy to be released here, and this one nuclear is certainly considered as one of the energy sources with the highest power output. Well, nuclear fusion would actually be even better than the nuclear fission that we currently use. Unfortunately, at the moment, because of the lack of pressure and temperature required for nuclear fusion, we can't actually achieve that. However, I, I did read an article about how some scientists have actually found a way to increase the energy output so that more energy is released than what was put in, but it's still in its very early stages, so for now, nuclear fission seems the way to go. But at the same time, lots of people are still against it. Yeah, because even if this succeeds, it's very hard to control nuclear uh, fusion, so that's why it may not be a viable alternative to nuclear fission. Uh, nuclear energy um, also has its downsides in terms of radioactive waste being produced from nuclear reactors, um, and this can damage wildlife around nuclear plants. And of course, it's very expensive to uh, put this radioactive waste in bunkers underground, which have to be covered in uh, materials that block all the radioactivity. But an argument against this would be that typical fossil fuels such as coal or oil, when you burn them, uh, of course, certain uh, undesirable products are created, such as suits and carbon monoxide. And these lead to many thousands of deaths every year. So you could say that uh, while nuclear produces waste that will then be hidden underground, fossil fuels produce waste that's in the air and entering our lungs. So it's quite an even argument. I think it's all about public perception, and I think that's why the media plays such an important role in things like this. The media doesn't usually mention, oh, fossil fuels have killed this many people, but they often cite Chernobyl or Fukushima as nuclear disasters, and so it creates this whole fear surrounding nuclear energy, which I think affects people and their willingness and attitude towards using nuclear energy. For instance, when they first decided to make the train, everyone was afraid because they thought, well, anything faster than a horse would kill you. But then, as people started to experiment with it, more, they realized that actually it was a better decision to make. Also, another thing that may make countries wary of nuclear energy are the security um, aspects. As nuclear energy and uh, uranium-235 uh, isotopes can be achieved through um, uranium enrichment. However, if this is continued to be done, it can create bomb-grade fuel which uh, will severely harm the country's security. Exactly, and in a world, in a nuclear world, basically, um, nuclear weapon pro proliferation may increase dramatically, and that's of course 
major problem for uh, many countries, particularly if it ends up nuclear weapons end up in the wrong hands. And of course, terrorist attacks on nuclear uh, nuclear power plants are a major issue and could lead to meltdowns. But as Eliza was saying, like, public opinion is really easily swayed by these meltdowns, which do not have as dramatic effects as uh, people claim them to have. And for example, in the year following Fukushima, uh, there was a referendum in Italy on whether nuclear energy should continue to be used in the country. And over 96% of voters voted against nuclear energy, like just following Fukushima. So it really shows, and Italy was previously quite pro-nuclear, so it really shows the effect these uh, things have on public perception. But I think it is worth mentioning that the UAE is trying to explore more about nuclear energy and they've actually also opened a nuclear power plant. Yeah, but um, coming back to Ryan's point, nuclear energy and nuclear disasters aren't that common. And for example, in Fukushima, only about 2,300 people died, but um, possibly due to fossil fuels burning and combustion of them, there were almost 4 million deaths um, associated with respiratory issues. So then that's a big thing, how we should focus more on the effects of climate change and the release of fossil fuels into the atmosphere, and less on these disasters of um, nuclear plants that many, the media perceive to be fatal. Exactly, and an analogy I've heard about nuclear energy is that it's sort of like a plane and all the other, well many of the other sources of energy are like cars or boats. The plane will get you there the fastest to your goal, but the car, wait, the cars, well the plane has a risk of a major accident which would kill everyone on board, so many people are, might be scared of it or yeah, there might be unnecessary fear, but these risks are actually really low, and if you want to get to a decarbonized world, nuclear is basically like the plane, I would say, and nuclear fusion even more. Another possible renewable source of energy is actually biofuel. So what do you all think about that? Uh, so biofuel is actually used in the same way as fossil fuels, um, but it's made from animal waste or plant waste, which is quite easily accessible. I think one problem with biofuel might be that even though they say it's carbon neutral, if you think about how much energy is required to actually grow crops, I would say it's not so much for animal waste, but for the actual crop development. It kind of ties in with the food aspect of do you really want to use the land that you could be using for food to make biofuel crops? Because nowadays, instead of just using thin, thin trees or other damaged crops, they actually grow crops specifically for biofuel, which I think is sort of counterproductive. Yeah, with in a growing in a world with a growing population and about a billion people like quite hungry and some many people in desperate famine, it does not seem like the best course of action to use biofuels as this could be used to this land could be used to grow uh, crops and food and so it does not seem the most sustainable approach but it could be part of a uh, general uh, switch from fossil fuels. I think that biofuels can be used personally by people who want to get rid of their food waste instead of by mass uh, governments. Yeah, but on a large scale it seems like it would not be the best single solution. So in your opinions, what do you think? Petrol or moving towards electric cars? I would say electric, however, if you think about it, um, there are very few renewable energy sources that actually contribute towards the electricity that um, electric cars use, and this may be less efficient and overall burn even more fossil fuels than would initially be. 
Yeah, and with the current with current electric cars, most of the electricity uh, used for the electric cars is being produced anyway by the burning of fossil fuels. So, in the end, not much CO two is really um, just as much CO two is really as is released, and this could really only be solved by the use of renewable energy sources, which is, I would say, the key uh, solution. So. Other parts of COP also include the education side, the health side, and the food side. So it's not just about sustainable energy, but about all the things that contribute to making the world better and reversing the effects of climate change. And I think it's really important that a lot of people from around the world get together to talk about this, because every country has its own problems to do with the sustainable development goals. And I think that when they share ideas and discussion and have discussion with each other, it's particularly important. So what do you think about all the countries coming together to collaborate? Do you think it's useful um, at this point, or do you think it just leads to debates which don't actually go anywhere? I definitely think it's useful. Um, like you said, it allows countries to collaborate um, and decide what their future actions are. Um, in terms of the arguments that may arise from COP28 conferences, I feel like these arguments are important to making sure that we achieve sustainable development goals um, and they're necessary for a country's progression to a greener future. Yeah, I agree. It's all interconnected world. So something that happens in one country is not unique specifically to it and it can um, affect a wide array of nations. Certainly, and I feel where well, every COP uh, raises awareness for the issue of climate change and without this awareness we probably wouldn't be here speaking today and the more awareness that it gets the more likely action uh, will be taken and yeah that's very important. Uh, so another big thing that COP28 does and every other COP conference, um, they try to bring together indigenous people, so a different part of uh, the global community, into the conversation about climate change. Um, and I believe personally that this dialogue would help advance efforts to strengthen local communities and indigenous peoples, um, help enhance their leadership, knowledge and technologies. So what do you guys think about that? Yeah, the Bedouins are a very big part of the UAE culture and society, so I think that they definitely need to be included. And I think just all indigenous people from around the world, often, sometimes, governments can overlook them or not consider their, um, well, their land or their requirements or their cultures, and I think that it's really important to draw more attention to them. Certainly, like, there's been many issues, like, uh, the Malaysian rainforest where uh, more indigenous or people or tribes have been like, displaced due to deforestation, which is a major industry in Malaysia, or in many other countries around the world. Uh, so certainly important to grow awareness for such issues. So I think this has been an excellent discussion and we've covered the main points that COP28 will cover. But of course there's so much more and if any of you are interested, you can always visit COP at Expo City. Thank you. Thank you very much.